everyone. Hope y'all are having a great day and that tuning in to the Practicology podcast will make it even better. My name is Matthew Kane, and today I am joined by a special guest once again. Vincent Kember was with us for episode 37. And Vince, we welcome you back today. Thanks so much for coming back on. Hi, Matthew. Thanks for having me again. Our pleasure. Last time, Vince, that you were with us, you began a study on the subject of Christian unity. This is part two of two. And in the first part, you gave us a definition of unity and how Christian unity is centered on Christ. Of course, it should be. Don't be surprised, everybody. And you looked at the metaphor of the body in 1 Corinthians 12, how unity shines out of diversity. And you challenged us as to whether our local churches do a good job of reflecting the diversity of our communities. You finished part one by bringing us to the commencement of the church in Acts 2 and how from the very beginning it had an international flavor. People were there from over 15 geographical locations. Remember this change from the Old Testament to the New Testament, brothers and sisters. The Old Testament people of God were the nation Israel. In the New Testament, in our dispensation, it is not now the one nation Israel that God is focusing on. It is the multi-ethnic church. He calls that the holy nation. But while there were 15 geographic locations mentioned in Acts 2, All those people were in Jerusalem because they were Jews or proselytes. What begins to happen in Acts, though, is (gasps) Gentiles are saved, grafted in, in the words of Romans 11. The body of Christ and local churches are becoming multicultural. Yeah, exactly. And you were highlighting that beautiful example in the church in Antioch, where Jews and Gentiles saved and united in Christ. And when Barnabas saw those diverse cultures united in Christ, it says that he saw the grace of God. Now, that's a lovely description, but remember, the New Testament also gives us unfortunate accounts of how the enemy attacks this unity and how the early church struggled as people acting in the flesh tried to unite around similarities and commonalities outside of Christ. Now, just imagine these situations. I only eat kosher food. Guess we can't have Lysias over for dinner anymore. Those families don't celebrate Pentecost, so let's just hang out with the families that do. I'd never be caught dead eating at the same table as a slave. Let's have communion while they're still at work and finish up before they arrive. So you can imagine these comical to us, but not at all in their time, comical examples of how people unite around other similarities, commonalities, and the normal human differences and distinctions that we make. I'm just trying to imagine your facial expressions as you were speaking that way. (laughs) That's why uh, this is a podcast, not a video. As we mentioned in part one of the discussion, the most frequent example that is developed for us in the epistles is the divide between Jews and Gentiles or non-Jews. It may be a less pressing reality for most of our audience today, but I think many principles may be applied to other divisions and barriers today. So I just want to read in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 14, it says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in a one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, 
in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, how many disagreements could be overcome if Christians really understood that their faction and the one that they're fighting with are both fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, and that they're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit? In our first episode, we focused on the biblical metaphor of the body. Here we have two more metaphors. First, we have a social metaphor. We are fellow citizens and members of a household. So the Christian tradition of calling each other brothers and sisters is radical. And it's especially radical when it's extended to people that I wouldn't be caught dead with before I was saved, before I was brought into this diverse family. But then we also have a building metaphor. Christians are being built by the Spirit into a holy temple in the Lord. This reminds us that we don't get to choose with whom we share this bond of unity. You're a brick, and you don't get to choose which bricks end up around you. There's an architect and a project manager, and he's doing great things. When we divide or create groups around the wrong things, how does that affect the building that God is making? That's why it's such a serious issue. And so let's talk about some of these threats. What is it that threatens our unity? What is it that can come and disrupt our unity? So I've made a short list, and the first would be doctrine. So sometimes uh, our unity can be threatened by differences in terms of doctrine, so how we understand and interpret Scripture. Now, this there can be different flavors or different ways this can come about. It can be from honest disagreement. Godly people honestly looking at Scripture will come to some different conclusions. There's also an aspect where we need to learn to recognize the importance and the primacy of some truths over others. We can't just agree to disagree when it comes to the deity of Christ or the inspiration of Scripture. Then there's also those who make it their job to sow discord and dissension, and they thrive on stirring controversy. Romans 16 tells us in verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. They definitely seem like boys we should avoid. And when it comes to issues of doctrine, I mean, doctrine obviously is important, um, but you're saying some aspects of doctrine are more important than others. How do we make that distinction? I mean, it's all God's truth. So how do we decide what is of prime importance that we cannot let go of, that we must hold to and be loyal to, even if it's going to cause offense for some others? And maybe there's some other things that we need to live with some different interpretations. So how do we recognize that distinction? Well, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it, Matthew? This whole issue requires wisdom, I would say, and maturity and honest intentions. So I don't want to get lost in something that could be a whole other podcast, but I think there are principles that we can use, like the frequency, the clarity, layers of context, looking at interpretive tradition. Those are things that the Holy Spirit can use as he guides us into all truth. But I think, or at least I hope, that most Christians could produce a short list of the most basic, important truths from the Bible. 
And if that's not something we can do, then maybe it's something we need to be teaching more explicitly in our churches. So that's the first one, doctrine. And the second would be interpersonal conflict. So this can be over minimal things. It can be body language. It can be social expectations. Well, she didn't invite me or they didn't come talk to me. It could just be from not being careful with our words, sensitivities. So these things are unavoidable because we're human. And we are called to overcome these situations with Christian grace and forgiveness. But sometimes our flesh wins and we allow the sparks to become a fire. Our conflicts can spill over to other people. Lines are drawn. People choose sides. And soon enough, a local church can be divided. So interpersonal conflict. And then there can be social and cultural issues. So in our times, I'm thinking of things like the Black Lives Matter movement, American politics, indigenous issues in Canada. The response to the pandemic would definitely be perhaps the pressing social issue of our time. Lockdowns, vaccines, everything that comes with it. And just watching in the past year and a half, Christians have turned to public platforms to express their opinions and heartfelt disagreements with other believers. And that's not to say that silence or pretending that we all agree is the better alternative. But how do we navigate issues when true believers and godly believers come to such different conclusions? And then the last one that I was thinking of is just preferences. So preferences and opinions when they're strongly felt and expressed on how things should be done. So the color of the curtains, the font for the texts on the walls, the time of the gospel meetings, whether we should or shouldn't do open air meetings. These kind of preferences can be at the, at the heart of disagreements and disunity as well. Matthew, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, a fictional work in which a senior devil writes to his junior advice on how to sabotage a Christian life. I love it. It's a brilliant piece of work. So I found this quotation striking. So he says, I think I warned you before that if your patient, and that's the Christian, can't be kept out of the church, he ought at least to be violently attached to some party within it. I don't mean on really doctrinal issues. About those, the more lukewarm he is, the better. I think there's a lot of insight in that quotation. Mm -hmm. Now, is it possible, I'm just questioning, is it possible with this list of things that we've just described, for those things to find a root and to thrive in a person or a, chart, a church? I'm going to start again. So is it possible for the things that I've just described to really find root and to thrive in a person or a church that are marked by the following things? So humility. This is the antidote that's presented to an assembly that's marked by infighting. In Philippians chapter 2, we're told in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And of course, it goes on with Christ being the ultimate example. Yeah, I'm glad you went to Philippians 2. I was hoping you're going to get there sometime. It was a really uh, light bulb moment for me a few years ago. We did Philippians in our conference weekend here in Halifax. David Peterson led that study in Philippians chapter 2. And just the way that unity is to be enjoyed, so dependent upon our attitude towards one another and respecting one another and serving one another following Christ's example. It was exceedingly helpful to me. So humility, but then also peacemakers. So people that have a disposition towards reconciliation or peacefulness or agreement. 
Yeah, great example, Vince. In Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called the sons of God. So that's not an easy task, but it's a very noble ministry that displays the very character of God. And then there's forgiveness. So we're told that we need to forgive seven times 70. And we have the parable of the unforgiving servant. So, so there's a lot in the New Testament that tells us about forgiveness. And then there's gospel focus. So gospel focus trumps intramural issues. So who has time for these secondary issues when we're busy together in the gospel? And then finally, of course, love, which the Bible calls the bond of peace. And so when these things are present in me and in my church, humility, being a peacemaker, forgiveness, gospel focus, and love, how can those um, sources of disunity find a root and thrive? So as I ask that question, it kind of leads me into my final topic, which I've called the way of unity. Yeah, and as we move into this final section, Vince, I think it's worth just going over what we have seen so far. So in our previous episode, you talked about a definition of unity and how it's centered in Christ, the context of unity in the church and local churches, then the roadmap to unity, where you introduced us to some of those early chapters in the book of the Acts. We've just been discussing threats to unity that you've just been highlighting, some particular issues. So now let's go a little bit more on this, the way of unity. Thanks, Matthew. So we know we want it, we know what hinders it, and we know why it matters. But the golden question is, how do we produce it? So if we turn to Ephesians chapter 4, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. It's clear to me from this passage that we can maintain unity. It's a gift from God that we can nurture, but it's not something that we can conjure. So we can be guilty of trying to whip up false unity that is based in forced conformity, as we saw in the first episode, keeping out people that won't fit our model, creating a context in which people are primarily concerned with fitting in rather than primarily concerned with true spirit-led living. But true unity is a gift of the spirit. And we see here that in order to maintain it, we do well to think often about the things that we have in common. And there's a long list that's given here, more than enough to keep us too busy to dwell on our differences. If unity is a gift of the Spirit, I must also ask, how much am I being led by the Spirit? Are the fruit of the Spirit evidently displayed in my life? The opposite will almost certainly lead to disunity. James put it, puts it bluntly in chapter 4. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You, do, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So here we see the opposite of a spirit-led life, and with that comes the quarrels and the fights of verse 1. But as we go back to our passage in Ephesians chapter 4, it continues in verse 11 and says, And he gave the apostles, 
the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And this is the verse I want you to notice, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I, th I see a tension in this passage. When I read, until we all attain to the unity, to the measure and the stature and fullness of Christ, it seems evident to me that we are talking about something that will only fully happen when the head of the body returns, Christ himself, and when we are conformed to his image. So it's only fulfilled uh, in a future day. But Ephesians 4 is actually mainly concerned with what God is doing in the church now and how we can participate in that. So we will never attain perfect unity, but there's a lot of concrete things throughout this chapter that will help us to maintain that unity. So a little side note here. Ironically, one of the keys to unity, and I realize this is an in-house comment that will not apply broadly to all churches, but perhaps one of those keys may actually be more diversity. I'm not speaking of essential Christian doctrines here, but of convictions, of people and churches that have to do the hard work of applying scripture to their culture, to their own time and place. And rather than making sure everyone lands where I have landed and looks and talks like I do, celebrating the different members of the body as God has created them and taking time to understand how he has led them. I think this will create a context in which unity can thrive because we're keeping our eyes on the prize, on the center of our unity. So finally, I think there's two more scriptures which I think can shed light on the path forward for us as believers. 1 Peter 3, verse 8 says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And then Colossians 3, verse 12 says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Did you catch it? Brotherly love, a tender heart, compassionate hearts. Love binds everything together in perfect harmony. Without love, there will be no unity. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, and he was quoting Spinoza, emotion cannot be expelled by reason, but only by a stronger emotion. So if I'm having a hard time getting along with my brothers and sisters in Christ, perhaps I can pray that God will increase my love for them and then take concrete steps. Maybe sharing a meal is a good place to start to allow that love to grow. That's a good word, Vince. I love your point to actually take concrete steps to allow that love to grow and to exhibit it. And the scriptures certainly speak a lot about tables and having meals together. It's a common feature in the Gospels. Of course, there is the Lord's table, uh, that imitation in Revelation 3, where the Lord wants to come in and dine with people to sup with them. The ministry of hospitality, I know, is a subject for another time, but it, it is certainly a great way to try and put some of what you have taught us into practice 
maybe as you wrap things up here, Vince, just give us three practical pointers from your study on unity that you'd like us to take home. Sure. Well, we'll give it a shot anyways. So perhaps one practical thing, number one would be to purposely share a meal, whether that's going out for a meal or inviting someone to your table, but do it with someone that you wouldn't normally be attached to. So someone, for example, from a different age bracket. A second practical point would be, uh, we talked in episode one about making a short list of essential doctrines. So maybe give that a try. Learn what you need to hold on with a tight grip and what you can hold with a looser grip. And then number three, um, just to get on your knees, ask the Lord if there's anyone you need to forgive and to show love to in order to maintain the unity of the spirit in his church. Thanks very much, Vince. Thanks very much, listeners, for tuning in to another discussion on unity, important things to think about, and some particular things that Vincent has given us to put into practice. So thank you for being a part of our lives as we help make the scriptures part of yours. Thanks, Vince, so much for your work and preparing this for us. Thanks, Matthew. It was a pleasure. Mike Knox will be back with us in the next episode with some more great material as usual. May the Lord bless you all. Hope you all have a great day. <music>